Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Thanks, good buddy. Good morning, everyone. You guys are troopers with the music. Thank you for uh, bearing with us regarding the slides. You know, when I was young and just came to know the Lord Jesus, we didn't have uh, projectors and things like that. We had to memorize the songs. And uh, we were very spiritual for doing so. But I, uh, I appreciate you guys hanging in there with us. We are in the book of Matthew, my friends. Please turn there in your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we have left off. Now, if you've been here, you know that we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we're not quite in the middle of it, but uh, we are in the midst, I guess we might say, of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have slides today, so if you don't have a Bible, you're, you, we have them available for you outside the door. You're, today you're going to want one, because you can't even cheat by looking up there on the, the screen when we show certain verses. Uh, as I said, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount begins with, as you may recall, the Beatitudes. That's the section of the Sermon on the Mount that begins with the words, blessed are the, and it goes on and lists a whole bunch of things. And then from the Beatitudes, as we saw, it moves and it transitions to where Jesus is confronting the commonly held religious beliefs of his day, primarily the scribes and the Pharisees. They were sort of like the leaders, if you will, of the Jewish faith of the day, which the vast majority of people that Jesus ministered to were. And so they had their ideas, commonly held ideas, and most people assumed if the scribes and the Pharisees say, well, then that must just be the way it is. And as we saw last week, Jesus came onto the scene and he began to confront that thinking. And so he kept saying repeatedly as we spent some time considering, he would say things like, you've heard that it was said, you know, pointing to those guys over there, the scribes and the Pharisees, but I say to you. And I pointed out to you that that was completely against sort of the norm of the day. Nobody really took a stand on their own for thinking, but they would always quote another person. Rabbi so-and-so says this, but here is now Jesus not a guy from you know, the best institutions, not a rabbi himself in the formal sense of the term, but here's a guy that steps on the scene as a carpenter, a guy from Nazareth. And he comes and he steps on the scene and he says, look, you heard what all of the religious leaders are saying to you, but I say this to you. And as I said to you, some people were probably like, who is this guy? And wondering about this, kind of the audacity of coming out of nowhere and just making these claims. But as time went on, these truths began to resonate in their hearts. And they began to listen into this guy. And as we see at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, last couple of verses or so of Matthew chapter 7, it says that the people were astonished with what they heard. Because they never heard a guy teach in, in the way that he taught. Now, you may recall, the reason why Jesus had to confront the scribes and the Pharisees is because they, they had missed, here's the leaders of the Jewish faith, they had missed entirely what the entire Old Testament law was about in the first place. And in their minds, they had developed this notion, maybe they wouldn't have said this if they were taking some test, but practically, this is how it worked out in their theology, they had developed this notion that if they keep the law, if they're a good person, well, then they'll enjoy salvation. And sadly, in our day as well. The vast majority of people, I would su suggest, the vast majority of people believe that. If they're not such a bad person, and of course, we get ourselves on a scale and we, we put Hitler and we compare ourselves to Hitler. And I'm not a Hitler, and so I guess I'm going to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. 
or whatever, but missing entirely the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is never and was never to save a person. The purpose of the law was to reveal to a person that they needed to be saved, that they needed a Savior. And as we will see, that that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we move into chapter 6, Jesus is still in the process of addressing the standard religious practices of his day, particularly of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he begins the chapter, it's going to be the, essentially the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 18, by addressing multiple areas of religious practice that the religious leaders were getting wrong. And so I want to just kind of skim through some of them for you quickly. Look at verse 1. He begins and he says this, Jesus that is, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he begins by discussing good deeds or charitable deeds. Verse 2, look at that one. He addresses the way in which we give as part of our religious practice. He says, thus when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. So he addresses giving. Look at verse 5. Jesus discusses this idea of praying. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Look again in verse 7. Again, he talks about prayer. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then skip all the way down to verse 16, where he addresses another area of religious practice in which the religious leaders were getting it wrong. And he says this in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigured their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So he talks about charitable deeds, good deeds. He talks about giving. He talks about praying. And he talks about fasting. Now each one of those practices are good. You should, as a follower of Christ, you should be praying. You should be fasting. You should be giving. You should be doing good deeds. But as we'll see today, there are ways to do those things for the wrong reasons and with the completely wrong motivations. And Jesus, in our passage, is going to address those motivations. Okay, so you got that? That's the overview. You ready to dig in? All right, let's dig in. Verses 1 through 4. I read one. I'll skim through it. Beware of practicing your righteous deeds before others so that they might see you, for you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before others as the hypocrites do in the synagogue so that they may be praised. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you give to the needy, he says, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first area that Jesus is addressing is practicing our righteous deeds before other people in order to be seen by other people. Now, there's a couple things that I want to take notice of here. A few different things. Number one, this concept, it, there is this concept that you will be practicing, this idea that you will be practicing righteousness, doing good deeds, is assumed by Jesus. That's the first point that I want to draw out to you. Jesus assumes that you will be doing charitable deeds, good deeds, service, practicing righteousness is here, is what he is suggesting. So he's not giving us a teaching that we should do good deeds, but rather when you do good deeds. Your relationship with Christ 
should compel you to look beyond yourself and your little world into the lives of those that are around you. Okay? Your relationship with Jesus should prompt you to meet the needs of others as the opportunity arises. So for instance, Susan just gives this little thing about uh, the rescue mission. If your natural inclination to hear that is, hey, my problem, then you have a problem in your relationship with the Lord. Because the Lord should motivate you and prompt you to look outside of yourself to the needs of others. So that's the first thing that we notice. Jesus assumes you're going to be doing good deeds. Now secondly, Jesus is not condemning the doing of good deeds here. Or even that others see you doing good deeds. Otherwise, if Jesus were condemning that other people notice you doing good deeds, then he wouldn't have said back in Matthew chapter 5. Look back to chapter 5, verse 16. You remember back in 5.16, he says, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he's not saying that we have to be like ninja good deed doers that nobody can see, nobody notices. When, when we were doing youth ministry at this fellowship here, so it was back late 1990s, the kids thought it would be fun uh, to do some good deeds for my wife and I. And so they came to our house they rang the doorbell. They ran away. That wasn't the good deed. But, you know, out on the, on the, the porch there were like, was a cake or something. Like, I'm going to eat a cake that's left on my porch. You know, so, of course I'm going to eat a cake. This left, you know, so I did. You know, so then we were like, oh, how nice. You know, that was great. I wonder who did that. That's so thoughtful. And then we go down. We sit. We're watching TV again. 20 minutes later, ding dong. And we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, they came back, you know, or whatever. We get out there. Nobody's out there. But now there's like jars of milk. Because when the kids would come to Bible study, they'd drink all of our milk. And so we were like, oh man, these kids. And so they put milk out there for us. And then, you know, we were like, they're so nice. They're not there. So anyway, we go back, watch TV again here. Uh, ding dong, 25 minutes later. And now we're like, all right, this is getting ridiculous. You know what I mean? Uh, enough with the good deeds kind of thing. So we sucked my dog on him. And we sent the dog out. It was great. Kid jumped out of the bushes. It was the best. Anyhow, <laughs> it was great. I had this big dog. He was a big Labrador. He was great. And he could bark loud. He was nice though. He was a very nice dog. But anyway, that being said, we're not talking about being ninja good deed doers. People can see your good deeds. But what he is condemning is when you do those deeds so that other people will see them. Okay, so look again in verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by other people. Doing them in such a way so that everyone will notice just how nice you are or just how spiritual you are, or just how wonderful that you are. So the condemnation is not against being seen. Sometimes our deeds are going to be noticed, and sometimes they're going to perhaps even be publicly recognized by other people. But instead, Jesus' commendation, it's reserved for the habit of many, particularly the religious leaders of the day, of serving in such a way as to draw attention to yourself. That's what Jesus is addressing. Uh, serving in such a way as to draw attention to yourself. So notice what Jesus adds at the end of the verse. Again, he says, uh, in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The Father, our Father God, looks into our heart. He sees the motivation of our heart. And based on the motivation of our heart, he makes a determination about rewards. Deciding whether or not that person will receive a heavenly reward or instead, they will have to be content with the earthly reward. And the earthly reward is man's applause. The earthly reward is a plaque 
that they might receive or a whole bunch of likes on Facebook just because of how spiritual they are, how nice they are. They do such nice things. Such a nice person. Be careful that you don't do your deeds so that you can be seen by other people. Now there's one more thing in this verse that I'd like to draw your attention to. It's actually the first word. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by other people. That tells me that you and I, we need to be on our guard. That this is a tendency, there is a tendency in each one of us to descend into these sorts of actions and this sort of thinking is a very real and very present problem for each of us. There's just something about each of us, even the most spiritual of us, there's just something about the human heart that wants to go to that place where other people take notice of us and attention is drawn to us. We want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want people to think well of us, that we're good, we're kind, we're generous. We're so self-sacrificing. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to beware uh, of that. There's an admonition in, the word, in that word, beware, to continually be checking your motives and making sure that what you are doing, you are doing for the right reasons. Now Jesus continues in verse 2, talking about giving. He says, and when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you go. Now that sounds a bit ridiculous in the context of the day. It would have made sense to them. He says, don't sound a trumpet before you go as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the second area that he, Jesus that is, addresses is in the area of giving. And specifically that is giving so that everyone takes notice of your giving. Jesus has a name for people that do that. He calls them in the verse there, hypocrites. Hypocrites, a word which means in, in the language, an actor, a pretender. And specifically, literally, you could say one who plays a role. So it's good to give. You should be giving. It's part of your spiritual act of worship to be giving as the Lord directs and as the Lord guides you. But if you're doing so, so that other people will look at you and say, wow, such a spiritual person. Then Jesus says, you're nothing but a hypocrite. You're a pretender. You're acting as if you're coming here to give a gift to worship me, but in reality, you're coming here to give a gift so that everybody will worship you. And everyone will say how spiritual you are. So again, as he did when discussing the righteous deed, you should be giving. But what he's more concerned with here is the attitude of the worshiper's heart. It's more important than the act of worship, the act of giving. Again, the real motivation. Is it that God would be praised or that you would be praised? Again, look at the end of verse 2. He calls them hypocrites and he says they do it that they may be praised by others. That was the reason for their giving. Giving can be an act of worship, but it can also be an act of self-aggrandizement where everyone is drawn. It can be an act of worship where the giver acknowledges God and gives Him praise for the provisions and the receiver acknowledges God that He has provided for them. It can be an act of worship in that way. But sadly, there's a way to give in which all the attention goes to the giver and all the honor goes to the giver. And that, Jesus said, is hypocritical. In those instances, the giver has failed to worship the Lord. They, and they have denied the receiver 
the opportunity to worship the Lord. And that sort of giving is not pleasing to the Lord. Now the world may applaud and people may commend, but notice what Jesus says in verse 2 at the end there. He says, truly I say to you, that person has received their reward. That's it. And I hope that was satisfactory for you. A couple of claps, a couple pats on the back. I hope that was satisfactory for you because that's the only reward that that person will be receiving, as Jesus says there. In fact, that word reward is a term which could mean the total and final payment. This is the bill that is owed. That is the total and final payment. That's all that person is going to get. There's a few claps and a couple of pats on the back. So let me ask this question then. So then how should we give? If we have to give in such a way that nobody can see it, it seems to be suggesting there, how should we give? Well, let's keep looking. Look at three. It says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, rather than blowing horns and sounding trumpets that I am now about to give my offering into the chicken bucket that we pass around here, rather than than doing that, Jesus says, give in a way that even your left hand doesn't know that your right hand is actually giving. You see that there in the verse? Now the point there is this. It's not so much that our giving has to be done anonymously. That's not the point that Jesus is suggesting. It's not that we have to be sort of sleight of hand magicians so that our left hand doesn't know, ah, ha, ha, you didn't notice. You know, that our right hand is, that's not Jesus' point here at all. Jesus is not forbidding that you give by a check with your name on the top of that check so that you can get, you know, a tax deduction when you file your taxes later on. He's not suggest, suggesting that it has to be necessarily secretive in that regard. His point is not to draw attention to our giving. And more importantly, that we cultivate a heart that doesn't want attention for the giving. Now, let me add a point here. If it's wrong to draw attention to our giving, then I think it's also wrong, and I think it's safe to conclude that it's also wrong for an organization or a church to appeal to people's natural proclivity to have attention drawn to them. So they might say something like, hey, give this amount, and you can have your name on a plaque that we hang in the, the back foyer of the church. Or they'll say, give a little bit more, and you'll be a member of the gold club givers. Give a whole bunch of money, we'll even name a wing after you. Things like that. I think it's wrong for an organization to do that. Even religious organizations need to be careful not to appeal to the flesh to accomplish the work of the Spirit. Give in such a way that God is the one that is receiving the praise and not yourself. So he talked about charitable deeds. He talked about giving. Let's look at a third area. And this is the religious practice of praying. And as we know in other places in the Scripture, the scribes and the Pharisees liked to draw attention to people when they prayed. So we read this in verse 5. It says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So again, the problem is not praying. In fact, the problem is not even public praying. But what the problem is, is praying 
to be seen and to be noticed by other people. It says that there at the conclusion almost of verse 5. That's the problem, praying in such a way so that people take notice of you. Praying in such a way that people forget about who you're praying to and instead begin thinking, wow, he's such a good prayer. Or she's such a good prayer. That's the problem. So instead, Jesus says this, when you pray, go into your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and He will reward you. So again, it's not an admonition that we can never pray in public, but rather that when we do pray, that we pray in such a way that attention is not drawn to us, but rather to Him. God sees and He hears those secret prayers, and as He says, He will answer accordingly. We have another example of prayer in verse 7. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, he says. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So it was the Jewish religious leaders that missed the mark when it came to prayer because they prayed in such a way as to draw attention to themselves. It was the Gentiles that prayed in such a way that they heaped up, as the, the Bible there says, they heaped up empty phrases. They just kept praying and praying. Some versions say vain repetition. There was this thinking that in lots of words, God will be compelled to hear me and things like that. And so Jesus says, don't pray in that way at, at, um, as well. Don't pray that way either. So heap up empty phrases is what my version says. Some say vain repetitions. I believe it's the NIV that says, don't keep on babbling when you pray, thinking that by doing so, God is going to hear you. The idea is lots of words, but little to no meaning. God is not impressed by the many words that we pray or even the eloquence of our prayers. What God sees and acknowledges is the attitude of our hearts from which the prayers come. So you may think, you know, well, I'm just not really a good prayer. Just lay out what's on your heart to the Lord and He'll think you're a fantastic prayer. Because that's what he's concerned with and that's what he's interested in. And so, Jesus says not to heap up empty phrases. And then he adds, your father knows. He says, because, by the way, he says, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Now, that, that forces me to ask the question, if he already knows what I need before I ask him, why bother praying at all? Right? Why bother praying at all? It, doesn't it seem like it's a bit of a waste of time if he already is aware of all of these things? He's probably got other things he's got to do with anyway, like keep the universe operating and all that stuff. Should I really be bothering with him with these things if he already knows? If God knows what I'm going to ask him in prayer, why bother praying at all? The answer is this. Not that profound, because he tells us to. That's the, the simplest of answers, is because he tells us to. Now we know that we are not informing the all-seeing, ever-present creator and sustainer of all things when we come to him in prayer. We know nothing is surprising him. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Shocking him, anything like that. We also know that we're not trying to convince the Lord when we pray. Something like, God, this, one, this is a really important one and it's not for me, God, but for my friend. And she is a really good person, God, and worthy of you answering this prayer, God. We're not trying to convince God to go in a particular direction. So we don't pray to inform God. We don't pray to convince God. But we pray for these reasons. Number one, as I said, 
because He tells us to pray. Secondly, we pray because in doing so, we acknowledge our dependence on Him. Thirdly, we pray because it's the means by which we communicate with our Heavenly Father. And lastly, we pray because as we learn in the book of James, God does things in answer to prayer. James chapter 4 says this, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask amiss, it says. But the point that I'm making here is you do not have because you do not, do not ask that God does things in answers to prayer. So we should give, we should pray, we should do good deeds, and a little bit later we're going to see we should also fast. And as I've said a few times now, the key here, Jesus is not telling us we shouldn't do those things, but rather that we need to be careful how, or maybe more properly, why we are doing those things. What I mean by that is if they are, they are to be done with the right heart and the right motivation so that God will be honored. So, do your good deeds. Give your charitable giving to, to the church or whatever. Pray, fast, do those things, but make sure your heart is in the right place. And as he said in the one verse, beware. Constantly checking, Lord, what's my motivation here? What's my attitude here? Is it to draw attention to myself or is it truly to worship? Now, let's go on in verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus begins to give his disciples an example of how they are to pray. Now the prayer, it's commonly referred to as the Our Father, based on the opening words of the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. More properly, we would probably refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. But I think even that's probably erroneous because really the Lord is teaching His disciples to pray this prayer. If you want to read the Lord's Prayer, go to John chapter 17. So we should probably call this the Disciples' Prayer or the Our Father. We'll just go with that. How's that sound? Where we started. Now, I find it interesting that this example of how to pray is given right after Jesus says that we are to avoid uh, vain repetitions or the, the repetitive nature of empty phrases. Because many of us, our understanding of the Our Father is to say the Our Father as a vain, repetitive prayer. Now, I went to Catholic school. In a Catholic school growing up, first through eighth grade, we had to go to confession once a week. Many of us probably should have gone more frequently. But nonetheless, once a week they brought us over to the church part of the property and we had to go to confession. Now, I think the biggest mistake that the, the school made was they would bring us right around lunchtime. We would have our lunch. We'd go over to confession. And when you were done confession, then you could go out to recess. I like recess. Favorite part of my day when I was going to school was recess. And so after getting in there with the priest, and the priest would say, I need you to say 10 Our Fathers and 5 Hail Marys, I'd be like, no problem. Or Father, I'm out of here. And I'd go. I don't know what I prayed. I have no clue what the prayer was even about. I knew the words, and I'm sure I got them. I was like Crazy Eddie. Remember Crazy Eddie in those days there? You just bang out the words because that's what you can get out there. And that's a clear example. Many people pray the Our Father as a repetitive prayer, not even really thinking about the words, just kind of banging them out, and they've had this time to prayer. Now, when I became a follower of Christ, I began to avoid the, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. 
because I've associated it with my days growing up as a Catholic kid where it meant nothing to me, and so I began to avoid the prayer altogether, thinking it was just sort of a waste of time. Now, the reality is this. While the prayer should not be mindlessly repeated over and over again, I don't think the prayer should be ignored in the life of the believer. In fact, in the book of Luke, which is about two years after this account here, there's a story that we have there in the book of, the Luke, in book of Luke where another disciple, apparently not at this particular meeting, he comes and he says, Lord, how should we pray? And again, the Lord responds and he says, when you pray, you should pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be his name, and so on. So Jesus repeated it twice on two different instances. So I think there's some significance to it. We shouldn't just ignore it because perhaps some of us had some bad experiences with it, but I think we should dig in and I think we should look at what it says, which is what we're going to do. So we'll take some time, we'll do that. Now here's the question. Is Jesus giving us the exact words that he would have us repeat in the exact order, or is he just giving us a pattern for prayer? Well, I, I would suggest to you, I believe it is the latter. Can you pray the exact words of the prayer? Is it wrong if you do that as a Christian? I don't think so. But I think as we've been talking about with all of these things, as long as your heart and your mind are engaged in the prayer, and then I think it's fine that you, you can do that. But I think we, what we have here is a pattern of prayer that Jesus is modeling for us. So let's start digging into it. Look at verse 9. It says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus begins by instructing us to approach God as our Father who is in heaven. There's a couple things that need to be pointed out here. Number one is we come to God in our prayers. We don't go to Mary in our prayers. I mentioned earlier when the priest would say to me, pray ten our fathers and five Hail Marys. I did it because the priest told me to do it. But the reality is the Scripture teaches that we don't go to anybody else to pray. We don't pray to the saints, as a lot of people do for various things. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to anyone but God the Father Himself or, or the Lord Himself. And so we pray to God in our prayers. Our prayers are to be directed to Him. Now, it does raise this question. Is it appropriate to direct our prayers to Jesus or, or the Holy Spirit? Or are we only supposed to pray to our Father? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I, I know this. I know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. And, so, and we do see some examples of prayers, but typically it seems that prayers are directed to the Father. If you slip up by mistake and you say, Jesus, oh, no, I'm sorry, Father, here's my prayer, I think you'll be okay. All right? You can pray to Jesus, you can pray to the Holy Spirit, but it seems that the pattern that is in Scripture is more often than not praying to the Father, but definitely not to Mary, definitely not to the saints or to anyone else. That's, the, I think, the more important point that we can take from this. Our prayers are to be to, be to God. Now secondly, our prayers are presented to our Father. And that implies relationship. God is not distant. God is not unknowable. But He's presented to, to us by the Lord as a caring Father. And we are to approach Him in that way. And I know some of us, we don't have the best relationships with our fathers here on the earth. And, and that is what it is. But approach the Lord in sort of all the perfection of the ideal father-child relationship. We are to come to Him in that way. But I'll also say this that in the appropriate father-child relationship, along with the intimacy of relationship that should come, 
Also comes respect, healthy fear, and reverence as well. And so he's our father, but he's not our big buddy up in the sky. And so we need to approach him both in the intimacy of relationship, but also with respect and healthy fear and reverence that a father is worthy of. Those two are not mutually exclusive of one another. So Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Then next he says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed's not a word we typically use. I'm pretty certain none of us have ever used the word hallowed other than in this particular prayer here. But it's a term, it means holy. So some versions say holy is your name. It means different. It means separated. And you and I, we will have no interaction with any person, any system, anything that is truly holy other than God. And that's this idea of hallowed be your name. Everything, every person, every system of thinking has in some way or another been tainted by sin to some degree or another, except for God. And so, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We come to Him as our Father in relationship, yet with reverence, acknowledging that he is altogether different from anyone and any other thing that we will come into daily contact with because he is holy. So Jesus says, you want me to teach you how to pray? Begin by acknowledging, despite the fact that God is holy and you are not, he invites you to come to him as his child, as his son or his daughter. Begin by acknowledging that his presence is holiness, that it is separate, that it is distinct from any other person or any other place you will ever go. And enter into. So we begin essentially by worshiping. Worshiping God for who He is. Now secondly, verse 10, Jesus says, hold on there. He says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now here is where the disciple is making the choice to be the person that seeks and desires for the will of God to be accomplished in every area of their lives. Here is where the disciple is acknowledging their desire to be the person that seeks and desires for the will of God to be done in every area of their lives. And we notice the contrast. Now, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. How do many of us pray? Lord, do this, do this, do this, and do that. And if you could have it done by the end of the week, I I sure would be grateful, right? There's really not even this acknowledgement of the Lord's will. It's our will. And oftentimes we bring our will to the Father and ask Him to do our things. But here, He says, when He's teaching us to pray, essentially He says, when you pray, make sure your prayers are about advancing the kingdom of God. About seeing God's will advanced and not your own will. The right kind of prayer, Jesus says, it has a passion for God's glory and God's agenda. The first part would be God's glory. That's about worshiping Him. But His agenda, it's about seeking to see His will accomplished in our lives and through our lives. Now, let me make this point. When we say your will be done, we're not granting God permission to accomplish His will in our lives. Rather, what we're doing is we are submitting ourselves to the accomplishment of of His will in our lives. We're not granting him permission. God, you know what? You've been good. Go ahead, do whatever you want to do in my life. We're not granting him permission. 
but we're submitting ourselves that His will would be accomplished. He goes on, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus says, you want to learn how to pray? Pray prayers that demonstrate and cultivate daily dependence. Pray prayers that cultivate daily dependence. And that's a challenging one for us as American believers. Because for the most part, we don't need daily dependence. Probably, if not all of us, overwhelmingly in this room, we don't need daily dependence. Maybe weekly dependence, monthly dependence, certainly yearly dependence. If you know the salary stopped coming in, a couple weeks goes by and we start worrying and start praying and God, I'm going to need your help. But the vast majority of us, we don't need to have daily dependence because there's food in the fridge and there's money that is in the bank account. So it's more challenging, I think, for us as Americans to cultivate this attitude of daily dependence. But we need to exhibit and maintain daily dependence on the Lord. That's He's pressing us toward here. Now, let me throw this. Give us this day our daily bread. That talks about daily needs, right? Is it okay to come to God for daily needs? Some people say it's not. Very spiritual people. They'll say it's not okay to come to God for daily needs because, you know what, that's just daily mundane stuff. God's concerned about the spiritual. But I think Jesus makes it very clear here. God cares about everyday issues of life. And He delights when we demonstrate our need for Him in even the most mundane of things. He does want you to come to Him for the clarity of thinking that's necessary to complete that assignment or that project at work. He does want you to petition Him for wisdom to accomplish that task. And independence, come to the Lord with your needs and lay them down before Him. And so He says, give us this day our daily bread. But also notice this, He says, give us our daily bread. What He doesn't say is, give us our daily lobster or something like that or some filet mignon or some fancy steak. These are prayers for our needs, as somebody has said, not our greeds. And we need to be careful that God does not become our genie in the sky. That we petition for all of our wants and all of our desires. Because the reality is this, all of our wants and all of our desires are probably not going to be good for us. And again, you go back to that idea of submitting ourselves, he says, your will be done. And so we come to him for our daily needs, not our daily greeds. Now we move right along, Jesus adds, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some say trespasses, or we've learned the the prayer using the word trespasses here. The idea, whether it's trespasses or debts or whatever, the idea is sin. And we come now to the place here in this prayer where we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin, and we ask God for His forgiveness and for His cleansing. God, as we said already, God is holy, and you and I are not. And if you sit in His presence for any length of time, soon enough that becomes abundantly clear. And so we say, and Lord, forgive me of my sins. And then He also adds this, as we also have forgiven those that have sinned against us, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The one who is truly forgiven and who is aware of how much they have been forgiven for is going to be quick to forgive other people as well. As we realize just how much we have been forgiven by a holy God, those indiscretions that that other person has committed against us, they quickly begin to pale in comparison to all that we have 
committed against the Lord Himself. And so we pray, forgive us our debts even as we forgive others. Now, there is an important point to be made here looking at this verse, this idea of forgive us as we have forgiven others. Look down to verse 14 for a moment. You see there it says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, then you won't be forgiven. So we can look at those verses and we can think that our salvation is tied into the forgiveness that we give to other people. That it's dependent on whether or not we forgive others. And I would say to that, yes and no. Let me explain what I mean by that. It depends what you're speaking of. There's two types of forgiveness that are spoken of in the Scripture. One of them has been called judicial forgiveness. The other has been called parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness, it refers to the starting point of a person's relationship with God. And judicial forgiveness was settled at the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the starting point of a person's relationship with God. That forgiveness, it deals with the payment for the wages of our sin. And the Scripture is abundantly clear. There's no doubt really about it, quite honestly. The Scripture is abundantly clear that the payment for our wages of sin is taken care of in one way and one way, to, one way only. And that's through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now the second type of forgiveness that I mentioned to you, again, it's oftentimes referred to as parental forgiveness. And parental forgiveness is not dealing with heaven and hell, but it deals with fellowship. And it deals with relationship. And so as a parent, a parent maybe as a kid, you've heard this. But a parent might say to their kid, they might send them to their room and say, I want you to go to your room and think about what you've done. Anybody had that happen in their lives? My son's hiding his face. Uh, has that ever happened? Your parents send you to your room to think about what you've done? Look at all the liars out there. <laughs> Old people. Come on, you know your parents have done that. Maybe when you were young, eh, whatever. But the idea is that relationship is broken. You were sitting down in the family room together. Everything was great until one hit the other or whatever and had to leave the room and go sit in his or her own room and think about what they're done. The kid is upstairs. The parent and the rest of the family is down in the living room. But soon, the kid's going to think about what he or she has done, hopefully in humility, is going to make their way downstairs, come back into the room with the rest of the family, acknowledge the error of their ways, confess their sin, if you will, and when they do that, the parents will extend forgiveness to the child. And relationship can be restored. That's the idea of parental forgiveness. And that's what's being spoken of here. We're not talking about judicial forgiveness in the sense of if you don't forgive another person, you're not going to be forgiven and you won't be able to go to heaven. That's not what we're referring to. But we're talking about relationship. We're talking about fellowship. A person is not going to get into heaven or be excluded from heaven based on whether or not they forgave a person here on the earth. Because again, salvation is based on the work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That being said, we do know this, that unconfessed sin can hinder our relationship with God. If you, if you will, we have been sent to our room, or I think more properly, we have sent ourselves off to our room. Unwillingness to forgive others even others that have wronged us. But unwillingness to forgive others hinders our ability 
to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. And what it does is it creates a blockage. And so essentially Jesus is saying this, you want to learn to pray. When you pray, ask the Lord to forgive you for the ways in which you have wronged Him, even as you grant forgiveness for those that have wronged you. Now he adds one more part of the prayer, verse 13. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, asking the Lord to lead us not into temptation is probably a poor translation. Because it gives the idea that God is sort of dangling sin in front of us, and you want it, don't you? Or something like that. God doesn't do that. The, the term that would better convey what's being communicated here is testing. As James says, the book of James that is, God is not tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. But the Lord does allow testing. And he tells us in multiple places in the Scripture that the testing of our faith has the potential of producing a very good work within us. So God doesn't tempt us with evil. But he does allow testing. Now, I don't think you should go looking for testing, however. This portion of the prayer is given to communicate essentially to us this, that we would communicate to God, I should say, our desire to be set apart to God's will and His ways, and then to acknowledge, because I don't want to sin, Lord, I don't want to go down that path, and then secondly, to acknowledge that we are weak and that we are prone to fail. So we might go into a particular circumstance, and let's use the example of temptation. And we know that there's something there that draws our hearts away, but we, and we might go in there and say, you know what, I'm strong. I can handle it. You're an idiot. You're a fool. I shouldn't say idiot. Didn't we, didn't we say that last week or two weeks ago? I'm not supposed to say that. I was just giving an example of what other people might say. If you are looking at temptation and playing with temptation, you're being very foolish. Because one way or another, it will trip you up. And I think what this prayer here is acknowledging is a person saying, you know what, Lord, I know that I'm weak. And I know that I'm prone to fail. And so lead me, me not into the path of temptation. Or if you will, Lord, if I'm headed down that way, would you kindly just redirect me and send me down another path? Because I know I'm dependent on you and I desire to do your will, Lord. I know that I am weak. Praying this prayer. So this is the Our Father prayer. Praying this prayer sincerely from our heart expresses a healthy distrust of one's own ability to resist temptations and to stand up under trial. You and I, you're not as strong, we're not as strong as we think we are. And this prayer acknowledges that. I think you can pray this prayer. But just make sure you're doing it from the right place in the heart. Now there's one final part that we have to look at. That's verses 16 to 18. It's in the context of what we opened up our passage with. It says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, last week we talked about Jesus confronting the common teachings of of the day. I think this particular study is Jesus is confronting the common practices of the day. So last week he kept saying, you have heard that it was said, 
I think this week he could have said, you have seen that it was done. He may, maybe could have said something like that. You have seen that it was practice that the religious leaders like to pray long prayers so that everyone would see them. You have seen that it was practiced that they like to do their good deeds so that everyone will notice them. You have seen that they like to go to the temple and give in such a way that everyone observes. And now Jesus is addressing the last, and that's this tendency to fast. Once again, it's not wrong that they are fasting. I'd encourage you. I, I think it's probably the least practiced spiritual discipline in the American church certainly in my life, is fasting. Jesus is not discouraging fasting. We should be fasting. And all that is associated with that, it's not wrong to do that. But what is wrong is what verse 16 says there, so that their fasting may be seen by others. If you're going to fast, fast for the right reasons. Not so that you'll be praised as a super spiritual person. So we look at all these things. This whole sermon from Matthew 5, verse 1, when we started this thing, this whole sermon is about the heart. It's not about outward appearances, but it's about the heart. And that is where Christ is to reign as Lord. And that's what the Father takes notice of. And as we see in verse 18, and I'll read it to you, we don't have the screen, it says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's what the Father rewards. Would you agree with that? Let's pray. Father, we, Lord, we acknowledge <clears throat> and sometimes, Lord, we pray prayers, particularly when we come into a public setting and we're a little more mindful of our words, wanting others to think well of us. But sometimes we do deeds and somewhere in the back of our thinking there's a little bit of a hope that others might notice and once again, we put our offering there in the basket or we went out and we served the poor or the this or the that. And Lord, that there's this tendency of ours to have people notice us and honor us and praise us. And Father, uh, as we consider these words today, we realize again that in doing that, Lord, we rob you of the glory that is rightfully yours. And Lord, as your kids, we certainly don't want to do that. And so, Lord, we just pray once again that you would use your word to search out, Lord, the deepest places of our hearts. And Lord, as we always pray, Lord, when you expose an area, Lord, that we would respond in obedience, Lord, that we would confess that area as sin, that we would kind of lay it down there at your altar, and we'd get up and we'd leave and we wouldn't take it up again. Lord, that truly we would have been impacted by the Word of God and that it has affected change in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Lord, do that work within our hearts today. Give us hearts, Lord, that run hard after You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.